We lost one of our greatest artists last night. The amazing landscape, still life and portrait painter Nicholas Harding. And my heart sank when I heard the news. It's early afternoon as I'm recording this and already there are many tributes coming through in the newspapers and social media. It's clear he will be greatly missed. When I started this podcast, Nicholas Harding was on my wish list. And three years into the podcast, when he agreed to the interview, I felt like I had hit the jackpot. And I was right. He was one of the most authentic, warm and thoughtful guests I've interviewed. And it was a privilege to meet him in his studio. Although he was a highly acclaimed painter with sellout shows, he spoke to me in such a down-to-earth and humble way. He was humorous, he wasn't afraid to also reveal moments of self-doubt, and he was open about his cancer treatment, which he'd undergone the previous year. And in what seems typical of his nature, he was more interested in sympathising with those who were worse off than himself. It's this interview which was first published in 2019 that I'm bringing you today. I also made a video from our conversations that day, and there's a link to that in the show notes as well. There's no doubt that Nicholas will be remembered as one of Australia's most gifted painters of the 21st century. He won many major art prizes, including the Archibald Prize, in which he was a finalist 19 times, and a few months ago he won the Wynn Prize with his painting Eora, one of the most complex, immersive landscapes that you will ever see, manipulating impasto paint to represent nature, yet still retaining an astonishing abstract quality. He was particularly interested in light, how it came through differently depending on the foliage, how it landed on the ground, how it created various kinds of shadows, and how different it was to the light in England where he spent the first nine years of his life. I spoke to him at the Art Gallery of New South Wales in May this year, shortly after he won the prize, and I've put a link in the show notes to the video of that conversation, and the whole conversation is included in episode 127 of the podcast. Nicholas was also recognised for his wonderful drawings, and in this episode we talked about drawings he made of actors from life while they were in theatre rehearsals and performances. Those drawings were later published in a beautiful book called From the Wings. His works are held in many public institutions, including the National Gallery of Australia, the Art Gallery of New South Wales, the National Portrait Gallery and the Art Gallery of South Australia. So here's my 2019 interview with Nicholas Harding. And I started by asking him what memories he had of art as a child. Most of us remember it from about the age of four very clearly. Um, and I, I certainly have very, very visual memories of, and they're not based on photos, they're, they're actual memories, because some of the things aren't, weren't photographs. I mean, there are a lot of things that obviously we remember because we saw a photograph of it, but um, there are lots of things that uh, have stayed with me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like what? Not so much of pictures that happened later when we got to Australia, but in terms of why I paint some of the things I paint now come from those those times. There's a great there's a great quote by um, Simone de Beauvoir that I, I, I adore, which is just trying to recall it. It's um, we can't arbitrarily invent projects for ourselves. They have to be written in our pasts as requirements. And so 
if you think of, you read the biographies of a lot of creative people, there's, there's usually, it has a lot to do with where they come from and who, who their parents were or, or where they lived. Yeah. There's all, there are always seminal influences that have been imperative to what they have, have ended up doing. And have your parents been had, had a huge influence on you? They did. They weren't, they weren't necessarily creative in an artistic way. Dad did draw a little bit. Uh, Mum eventually did quite a lot of drawing and painting. Uh, oh, but, but, but later, uh, after we left home, I've oh. got two brothers and a sister. So she was very busy um, being a mum, and she was a working mum as well. Oh, okay. uh, but the thing I was referring to earlier in terms of a boy in England, um, we used to visit my paternal grandparents a lot in southeast London in Welling, and they had a great garden. They were really, really avid gardeners. They lived through the Blitz, and um, the house had been bombed twice because they lived next to a railway line, mm. and the Germans were often miss. Um, Mum and Dad are both born in 1930, so they were nine-year-olds when the war started, mm. and they'd been evacuated from London during the phony war and then come back to London, um, and then the Blitz happened. Right. So my grandparents in particular, um, you know, the, the way they, they saw life, I imagine, after the war, is everything was a, was a celebration of... of continuing life and part of this celebration was in the garden they grew so they had a pond it wasn't a big garden it was you mm. know it was a suburban backyard in in, in um, very close to central London but they had great roses and they had wonderful irises and they had, the roses weren't just in beds but they were climbers as well and they, had a, they had a pond with with some fish in it which we used to feed but the thing is about memory and you know, when you when you when you return to something that you remember as a child, and everything shrunk. Yeah. You know, so I haven't returned to these places because <laughs> my, my grandparents are long dead. But um, you know, I was only with these memories of from like when I was five or six. So everything seems a bit larger than life. Yeah. So a rose bush in my mind is is a tall thing. You know, it's yeah. it's, it's bigger than it would appear to me now as an adult. So that kind of feeds my attraction to to painting flowers and things of that nature because mm. it's not and it's not just about a memory thing it also ties in with a whole tradition of still life and uh, memento mori uh, mm. that comes from the the um, medieval times and then, also is that something that that's something you're um, conscious of when you do a still life which memento think? mori oh very much because when you do a still life it, it dies in front of you you know you come in the day uh, particularly here, if it's been locked up at night and it's been a stuffy hot night, you know, there's a lot of um, detritus that's fallen off and often wil- everything's wilted. Yeah. So right. you're very conscious of, and even when I'm on plein air in a garden painting, I remember painting um, down at Ken Coburn and it was a particularly hot uh, November and I was trying to paint the peonies, which are a very, very delicate flower. Mm. And in the, in, the, in the six hours it took me to paint this small peony, every time I looked back up from the canvas, uh, you know, another petal had dropped or, or oh, something really? wilted a bit or, uh, yeah. you know, it was just dying Did that in end the up heat. in the painting? Like, did, uh, well, did it has to, well, not, not literally, but it has to get in there. Yeah. And obviously 
uh, as weather affects an on plane air painting in the sense it's the sh- you're literally chasing shadows mm. um, you know the flower evolves in your painting different the flower you end up with is different to the both the flower that you started with in the morning and the flower you end up with in the afternoon yeah but it's that flower yeah exactly so it's it's very much a case of of, of uh, chasing shadows and light and, mm. and the form in that sense yeah. but all those things from from childhood feed into the moments now so there's also associations of familial love and care because mm. uh, I was very close to, to my grandparents. Yeah, uh, that must have something to do with it because, I mean, you wouldn't experience that garden if in that way if you didn't have that loving relationship. No, exactly right. That was whatever, whatever your human uh, interaction is, it, the relationships feeds into how you read and, and emote from something. Exactly. Um, so it's a it's a very um, it's a very powerful and wonderful thing because for me it's a continuing dialogue with people who I loved and who loved me. So it's a very powerful thing. Even now, you know, being a sixty-two-year-old um, adult, those things return. Um, you know, it, it often happens when I'm painting a flower that. That they come to mind, and, mm. it's a, and it's a wonderful thing. So that's a, the complexity of memory and present. Um, you know, the now thing, and then the things that have been mm. are all tied up together. Mm. And um, when you came to Australia, uh, what was that like? I mean, you were only eight. Oh, it was brilliant. It was. Uh, I mean, as kids, you, you just, you know, parents are going off on this adventure, and so yeah, oh, it's great. That's what people do. And then when we got here, um, it was just so different um, in terms of we'd often gone to the beach in in, in um, Britain. We'd gone down, driven down from Sevenoaks where we lived to the south coast down to uh, Frinton and Eastbourne, and which were sand beaches. But mm. uh, when the tide went out, uh, it felt like you'd almost walk to France because it was so shallow and so benign. The water was so far out you couldn't see it, so you had to wait for high tide to come in to oh, get water. Right. Yeah. And there was lots of breakwaters, so the expansive beach was broken up by um, old kind of um, rotting timber breakwaters. So then we came to Australia and there was surf and there were rips and then the sand was too hot to walk on. You got back in the car and if you didn't have your towel in the right place, the vinyl seats would burn your... Scalds your, you know, yeah, legs, your, yeah. your thighs. Um, there were bindies, so the grass was <laughs> the grass was violent. That was one of my first memories. We went to visit a friend in Bondi, and it was an overcast day. It wasn't a very nice day, and it was we'd only been we hadn't been in Sydney a week, and we went up to where it must be North Bondi, where the expanse of grass field is. Oh yeah. And I saw it, and I went, oh, awesome! So I took off my shoes and went for a run. And within <laughs> within seconds, my feet were on fire, and I couldn't work it out. And it was full of bindi. It was just excruciating. And it yeah. Was, so there were all these things. Yeah, that, the Australian experience. And then we'd be warned before we left because we used to go walking in Knoll Park near home and poke things with sticks and and whatnot. And they said, "Oh, you can't do it in Australia. The spiders will kill you, and the snakes will kill you." And <laughs> so it was. Well, um, you live, when you you moved to a place in Sydney that was pretty much in bushland. It was in the bush. Yeah. yeah. It was sort of. The beginning of when that northwestern part of Sydney was starting to be suburbanised, and so we lived on the edge, 
and so our playground was the bush and um pretty free sort of just childhood. free yeah, yeah. You know, i had to be home by dark kind of thing and did you um did you do art at school like yeah actually, yeah i excelled at art at school it was one of my favorite subjects and was it in high school i was always in the art room i was always the one of the um the few it was a it was a cricket rugby league school and i didn't play either and wasn't interested in either so i was i was labeled the um the the arty drug taking poofter <laughs> They were right on one count. I wasn't a poofter and I was, didn't take any drugs. So um, that, was, that, was, that was the nature of life back then. So one of the things, um, you've got your friends, but then you want to fit in a little bit more. Yeah. And, and I, because I could draw, so I started drawing caricatures of my classmates in about third, third form, which is what, year nine, I think. Ah, oh, yes, yeah. And, and I made this little book of all my classmates just drew them in biro and that was a big hit and then so I did a whole book in in biro and coloured pencil of all the teachers which is a, which was another it disappeared and on the, on tour in the, of the staff rooms for about two months so after you finished school was it clear to you that you wanted to pursue something in art um not immediately um I, I qualified for university and I was the other things I was particularly good at at school was history and um, English and philosophy I was interested in philosophy and so I signed up for arts okay and became very quickly bored did the half yearlies and then didn't really turn up for anything in the second six months did the exams failed and dropped out and and I was going through some depressive issues I wasn't very happy and um, I thought I've got to get out of this, I've got to, sh- got to shake myself up a bit. Mm. So I thought I'll go overseas. So I worked as a um, worked at a petrol station for, for 18 months and saved some money up and got on another boat and went overseas. I was in Europe for about six months and um, came back because I'd fallen in love with my girlfriend who was from Australia. We'd met up overseas mm. and um, we're still together. And, um, oh, your wife? Yeah, my wife. Yeah. Oh, your wife, yeah, Lynn. Lynn. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. yes. And um, so that all worked out marvellously. <laughs> and uh, I came back and I wanted to get into animation because that was my one of my other seminal experiences. So when we just got to Australia, just moved to Normanhurst, um, we went shopping with mum one day and then she said, oh, I've got a surprise for you all. And um, did a bit of shopping and then she took us to see Snow White and the Seven Dwarves at Hornsby oh, Cinema. Yeah. And um, Walt Disney. Walt Disney. And then, of course, during my teens, um, I just fell in love with Warner Brothers cartoons, you know, Daffy Duck, and mm. I still love them. Mm. And uh, the mystery of that and, and timing and, and, and performance with the drawing was just, wow, how does that happen? Yeah. So anyway, so, yeah. so I got involved in that when I got back. Right. Eventually, it took, a, took, a, took about a year to finally um, yes. get, get employment. So that was with Hanna Barbera. Yeah, in, in, here it was, in Sydney. with Sydney. So you start off as a as an assistant animator, and and because I was draw, I could draw, and I was very good assistant animator. They made me an animator within about six months. When I was working there, I became freelance after a few years. But um, when I was working there, you just went in and drew cartoons, which was a very disciplined thing in the sense that there were deadlines. Um, you had to do a certain amount of footage a week, uh, which is how they measured footage of film. Mm-hmm. So that's how they worked it out. 
to um, get the, the things made. So you get a storyboard and then you have to translate a single panel on a, a storyboard which has become a layout. So the layout artist has shown you what the scenery looks like and how big the characters are mm-hmm. and what their arc of action is. But then you have to turn that 2D, it was on paper with a pencil back then. It's a long time before computers arrived. Mm. And so you had to turn that 2D space into a 3D one. Mm. So you had to you had to turn the character around 360, possibly, move them. So if you think of an XY axis being up and down, you've got to move through the Z one, the Z one that moves backwards and forwards yeah. away from the viewer and towards the viewer. Mm. So there's there's this perspectival um, form at work mm. with movement and the speed of the movement, how fast is it going, how slow is it going. Yeah. And so you have to conceptualise that and then draw it. Yeah. And so how do you think that helped you with your own sort of uh, work? Well, I've come to realise that um, in terms of conceptualising space, it's, um, it's just given me a... a an ability without thinking about it, so I guess that's intuitive ability, to represent a 3D space on a 2D platform. Mm. Um, understanding how, when you're looking at a head to do a portrait, uh, how understanding how the planes travel back through space, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, and then obviously you can't see it when you're painting the front of a head, but you understand it travels back behind the head and comes back around. So it's understanding the form as a 3D object. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, I've always loved those books, you know, those drawing books where they show the 3D. And oh, the animation. Show, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you have those on hand as a, some kind of manual when you're first learning. Well, it's so helpful. So helpful. To learn how to draw. Yeah. And I think I read somewhere you went to life drawing. Well, life drawing period. is very important in that regard too in the sense that you, because you draw a lot of, a lot of drawings in a life session, very quickly from a lot of different angles. Mm. So you come to comprehend a particular form from many angles and you have that understanding when you're looking at it at a particular angle. So um, all these things inform how your hand moves, how your, 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 your brain drives your hand when you're drawing. All, all that information's in your, in your mind and yeah. somehow it's informing how, how your um, dexterity works. Mm. And how did the painting start? Well, when you do things like illustrations and, and um, animation, whether it's for t- animation for TV or for commercials or whatever, you're always a hired hand. You know, you're, there's, there's no element of um, personal investment in the sense of how you feel about things or, or how you really look at things. So life, life drawing actually for, for a number of years was what I call lancing the boil. So having, having been a, a commercial artist for quite a, a number of years, I'd learned some very sort of bad habits and didn't really know who I was. Mm. And so the life drawing... What do you um, mean bad habits? Well, in the sense of I wasn't looking at something and drawing it. I was making stuff up and... It wasn't necessarily of any worth because it came from a place of ego or um, my imagination. Mm. Um, 
I've always been a fairly, uh, well, very empirical in my in my um, approach to the world. You know, I'm an evidence-based kind of guy, and um, you know, I'm a devout atheist. You know, that whole belief nature of a belief system just doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the observed world. It was always the, the painters who engaged me. You know, I like. I, there's a lot of abstract work I, I do admire a great deal, and 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 love. But even probably my f- favourite, which is de Kooning, is a very figurative painter. Mm. He, 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 I mean, a lot of his paintings are of a figure, um, but even when they're not, they allude to landscape, and mm. they're not. Pu- they never strike me as purely abstract. Say someone like Rothko, or uh, even someone like Howard Hodgkins. Great British um, abstractionist. He, his his work is based on memory, and so there's something else empirical going on there. Yeah. So what were you? Uh, what what sort of subject matter were you looking at when you first started painting? Well, if you go back, to why I became a painter, um, the drawing thing was always there, and then the thing going back to my parents and their love of art. Um, so when we were living at Normanhurst. There were lots of art books, and mum and dad were immediately engaged with trying to find out what was going on here in Australia. Mm. So they were buying art books on Australian artists, and um, but there was a strong bent leaning towards British artists. So there were huge Turner fans um, oh. and Henry Moore fans, and uh, they'd buy reproduction posters of works and get them framed. Oh, right. Yeah. And so they'd hang around the house like paintings. Yeah. So. They were they were Turners. They were late Turners. They were they were um, sort of snowstorm at sea, peace burial at sea, um, burning of the houses of Parliament. Mm. Very very um, fabulous works. Very painterly. Mm. And mm. and then the other two really seminal works, which sat above. Well, there were three. Um, two were French, and or French French and French Dutch, and then one was Australian, and these would live um, above the dining room table for months at a time then they'd sort of get rotated and uh-huh. so one was houses houses at actually there were four there were two Van Goghs one was houses at Auvergne by Van Gogh yeah. and Churchill Isle by Van Gogh and then there was Les Ambassadeurs which was the poster of Martin Bruant by um, Toulouse Lautrec oh, yeah. and then there was Cephala by Russell Drysdale and so I'd, I'd eat meals, do my homework, and these things just sat there, and I'd, I'd often just get lost in them. Yeah. And I particularly remember the Van Gogh houses, houses at Auvergne, because um, it's one of, more, more of his, one of his more abstracted works, very mm-hmm. much what it is, but the way the marks describe it and the rhythms and the, the planes of colour, um, I just get lost in those for... Yeah, um, well, and also you could probably, with, with Van Gogh, you can see the brush strokes. Well, so that's the thing. You've got a sense of the, the impasto and, and the making right. of the thing. When I was in my teens, I, I loved Brett Whiteley, um, Lloyd Rees, and, um, and then John Olsons, and, and Arthur Boyd's, and Sid Nolan's, and these were all the ones here. Mm. Um, and then when I was 18, mum and dad took us all on a final holiday before I went off to uni. Um, and my one other brother was about to go to Germany to do an apprenticeship and so one last family holiday we went to Britain and one of the things we went to was at the Royal Academy in London on Piccadilly was this 
massive Turner retrospective. I remember coming out completely drained and exhausted because <laughs> that man just put out so much extraordinarily good work. Yeah, Particularly yeah. in his late years. There were just, there were just so many fantastic watercolours and drawings yeah. and paintings. So that, that, was, that was a very, that sort of always stayed with me. And then I was, Brett Whiteley had led me to getting really enamoured of Francis Bacon's work. Mm. And I'd already been introduced to, to his work by my dad when I was about twelve or thirteen, and they were very, very sen- always very sensitive to to my love of drawing and painting and, and um, art, and because uh, I was always puddling around doing something. Yeah. And so he saw somewhere up there in northwestern cultural wasteland of Sydney suburbs. I mean, there was nothing culturally to do up there, nothing at all. Yeah. Uh, and somewhere in the local paper he saw this little ad for some little dinky 16 mil film that was going to be shown in a community hall in Pennant Hills one night on Francis Bacon and so this is before Francis Bacon was globally known, he was getting a hell of a reputation particularly right. in Europe yeah. but um, he wasn't globally known and uh, so we went along there were about three of us there <laughs> And it was, a, it, was a, it was a very stormy night, yeah. and it was very humid, so the windows were open, and it was a timber, single-storey, sort of large shed, I guess you'd call it. Yeah. So the storm arrived and was blowing everything sort of all over the place, and wind was lashing, lightning was flashing. Mm. But on this pull-down screen, you know those old pull-down screens that used to stand on a metal upright stand, stand yeah, which was sort of fluctuating in the in the breeze and then there was a, the 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 tac 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 of the projector of the 16mm film yeah. and on all these sort of uh, crash zooms on pope's faces and and um, distorted horribly disfigured figures and yeah. uh, but brilliant colors and and exciting drawing and um, it must and, have been and then this amazing idea. sort of like, like a soundtrack like some italian horror movie <laughs> And, and so the whole thing was this, just this remarkable moment of, my God, this is so exciting. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's and so that just stayed with me. And these things just stayed. And I didn't do anything about it. Of course, just, wow, that's, that's, that's something out of the box, isn't it? Well, Francis Bacon, I remember first seeing Francis Bacon. He must have a huge impact on most people who've seen because you yeah. just think, what the yeah. hell's going on? And then, of course, on? I, got, then I got, got hold of his book of inter- the interview with David Sylvester, which is just a, a textbook piece of reading for any any painter on many levels and so that stayed with me so all these things sort of going back to that that quote i of simone de beauvoir's in the beginning these are all these sort of things that were planted in my um in my past Mm. and and they just grew to be a point where okay it got to i'd actually had a rented room in my uh, early 20s in north sydney and i had this animation desk in the corner and an easel in the other corner, and I'd spend too much time at the easel, not getting the work done. Um, but the works just weren't encouraging. Um, I should have taken myself off to art school or yeah, something, so but I you didn't. Were self, so basically self-taught. Yeah, I had a teacher at a, in, in my last year at high school and said, don't go to art college, they'll ruin you. And I went, oh, <laughs> all right. She must know what she's talking about. So, so I don't how know, did so you I learn how to, like, well, how just, to deal with oil paint, for example? Well, so that, that was a serious beginning, but then it didn't work out. Um, and I was very influenced by, I, ever since, again, since high school, I was also very enamoured of um, uh, Chuck Close and, uh, and um, 
Morley, what's his, Malcolm Morley, mm. who were New York, um, part of a New York photorealist movement. Mm. And Malcolm Morley was very, uh, you know, he worked, in their instance, the photograph was the subject. It didn't matter what the photograph was of, but it was the subject, was the photograph. Mm. But Ma- Malcolm Morley was a more painterly um, in his approach, whereas initially, Chuck Close um, was very much, pretty much it was just a big photograph. Yeah. But he, he took a photograph in such a way, so there's a great self portrait in black and white, very large, mm-hmm. where the planes of, of um, focus are very shallow. So he was painting out of focus um, planes and then in focus planes and what that gave you in terms of information. So that was a really fascinating way of looking at what a photograph did. Mm. Um, and then, of course, his work, I don't know if you saw that show number of, not that many years ago at the MCA, where his mm. practice now... Um, is he's still working with the grid, um, which has always fascinated me, but it's, he's abstracted within the grid. Yeah, that's right. Grid, Pretty it's amazing. An amazing thing. I, yeah. I still don't know. They had a progress of his prints, um, some of his printmaking, and I still don't know how he got from some stages to the others. They're just leaps of imagination. Yeah. So I'd also looked at, you know, I also, also became a big fan of the um, Renaissance painters, largely through Auerbach and Kossoff. And, of course, how they transpose an image using a grid. And then there's the late paintings of Walter Sickert using a grid. Mm. Um, I didn't know they used a grid. Yeah, well, they, they do what they call a cartoon, which wasn't, wasn't what we know as a cartoon. It was a very developed drawing. Mm. Um, Raphael, um, you know, the School of Athens painting, you know, the, the drawings of that where they sort of grid them and then transpose them. Um, so it's just a, just a mechanical way of making something smaller, larger. Mm. Um, but then when you get to someone like Chuck Close and how he's developed, he's, he's very much taken the grid as a way of, of then, as a tool to move from what is a photographically real thing and, and playing with that photographic image, but then he turns it into something completely different. Mm. Completely different, which is completely, which is within his own with his own painterly language. Yeah. So that's uh, so. in terms of, of becoming a painter, um, all these things are feeding in and and you get to a point where you go, I've just got to do something, uh, but I don't know what to do. So you just get a room somewhere, um, and which is what I did. Uh, I got a room above a um, pressing shop, a laundromat, um, down in Addison Road under a flight path, and... <laughs> And you have to be disciplined because I had to earn money. So I had, yeah. was a freelance animator. So I'd, I'd walk there at 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, it was in Enmore, so 20 minutes walk from home. Yeah. And I'd just push paint around for about four or five hours. And I'd walk home, have some lunch, and then do the day job. Can we talk about portraiture? Yeah. Because portraiture is one of my great interests mm, mm. and of course you know you are very well known for your portraiture mm. you've uh, been an Archibald Prize finalist 18 times mm. you've won the Archibald Prize of course with mm. your wonderful portrait of John Bell um, and you've been finalist in many other portrait prizes and the National Portrait Gallery held a wonderful exhibition which uh, was called Nicholas Harding 28 Portraits Sarah Engeldow the curator there brought together a wonderful exhibition of your work I just want to talk firstly, because I have interviewed a few Archibald 
winners. Mm. And it's sort of interesting because it's they're all varied sort of reactions to that experience mm. and uh I, you know not all positive actually so i was just yeah. wondering what your your experience was well of course to, to win that prize is incredibly exciting and and a, and a marvelous thing i mean it's terrific um so it's mostly of itself it's a it's a wonderful thing um i suppose if you're going to find a downside is it way it misses your head a bit um because all of a sudden, for five minutes, everyone wants to know what, what you're doing and, mm. and what you think, mm. not necessarily about anything that you've necessarily thought about. <laughs> you know, some very journalists ringing up for your opinion on any kind of matter of the day that... that oh, not necessarily not really, painting. No, no. <laughs> and and, and part- all of a sudden you seem apparently you're qualified to, to make remarks about something you hadn't really paid that much attention to. Sometimes it is something you paid attention to, but, but not always. Yeah. Uh, yeah well, you're sort of a celebrity in a way. Yeah, you are. Yeah, I guess yeah. you are. In, in it's, um, it's a small, a small um, pool in that, in that regard in terms of celebrity. You're not a football star and you don't play cricket and for, the, for the country and yeah. you're not a soapy star or, or in the movies or anything, but um, it is a celebrity of a kind. Mm. And, uh, Was it, were you expecting it? Was it? In what, what was I as, Were you expecting to win? No, not really. I mean, people were were tipping me, definitely. Mm. But I, I've been at, that was my eighth time in it. Um, and I'd had a couple in the refuse. Mm. And, um, and it was kind of like, well, really? There's usually something else in the room that, that gets there. Yeah. And uh, and I think it was the second time you painted John Bell. It was. I painted him the yeah. previous year, and that was to acquaint myself because I always had in my mind to paint him as King Lear because that was my initial impulse to paint him. Mm. But I didn't know him, and I had to paint him. I'd had a, done a few um, very quick sketches from memory when I got back from watching him as King Lear. We were in the front row in the middle, so prime seats. Mm. And that was the thing, that was the impulse, you know, that was that, that initial impulse that, that drives the creation mm. of a work. Well, I hear that he saw the sketch and he actually contacted you that... Um... Oh, that was a different sketch. Oh, is that a different sketch? Yeah, right. so, and that was some years before. So I would seen him in Coriolanus um, at the Seymour Centre. Oh, yeah. Uh, which I think was directed by Steve Burkoff. Um, I could be wrong on that. Um, but uh, I did a just a an ink and paper drawing of him mm. and a, one of their donors, sponsors, supporters bought it and donated it to Bell Shakespeare and, oh. and then John, who we'd actually met at morning tea at, at our mutual friend Rex Irwin's some time beforehand and um, you know we liked each other's company and mm. it, it, was a, it was a beginning of a, a good friendship but um, we hadn't seen each other for, for ages, but he, he sent me a nice postcard and said, oh, if you ever want to have me sit for the Archibald, just let me know. Right, And right. so when I saw him in King Lear, a little bit later, yeah. I got in touch with him and went to... He's a very busy man. Certainly back then he was very, very busy. So the only, only sitting initially to do a drawing was at lunchtime when he was um, rehearsing... Dance of Death, the Strindberg play down at um, the Wharf, mm-hmm. 
<clears throat> and I'd arrived early, so I parked outside and was reading the paper, waiting for the allotted time. And then I noticed he came out to walk his dog, and he was still obviously still in that Strindberg. He was still the colonel. He was in that liminal space of not quite himself and not quite the character. Yeah. But he had this look on his face that was very intense and would, would help him form my portrait of King Lear later on. Anyway, he took the dog for a walk, and then we, we did the drawing. Well, that's very interesting what you were saying about getting the expression because I think that's one of the most important things for a portrait artist and it's one of the <laughs> hardest things for a portrait artist is to try and get the right expression for that person. Mm, mm. And um, I read about you, you know, you've talked about this before where mm. you're sort of trying to find that off-guarded moment. Yeah. Uh, um, how do you go about trying to get to, to find that? Well, you don't really try and find it. You just have to be open to it turning up. And mm. Try not to miss it. Do you have to know the person reasonably well to be able to identify that that is that moment? No, no, and often you don't know what it is, but you notice something. For mm. instance, when I um, uh, painted Robert Drew, and I think the one I ended up, yeah, the one I ended up um, that was in the Archibald was um, the third attempt. And I tried two previously. The first one was all right, but then I. Um, wasn't happy so I kind of started reworking it and just fell apart mm. and then I tried another one and it wasn't very good at all and Catherine Hunter was doing a film thing on Robert and an opportunity arose to shoot both of us while I drew him but it was while he was in Byron Bay and we did the drawing and a bit of filming and then there was a break and we just sort of did a just didn't do much, just sat around and he went off and then he was coming back and I just noticed this look on his face and I thought, wow, that's really powerful. I didn't know what it was, but that was the thing I tried to to bring back into the painting, which mm. I did. Mm. And I later found out that he was having, you know, um, some marital troubles and, and he was very much thinking in mind of, of, of those oh. and I hadn't and he, and he was he actually wrote a little article about it he said you know Nicholas had no idea what was going on mm. but it's there in the painting and and it's in my eyes and I can and he could, he could identify himself, himself. yeah so well, isn't it, that's the one where he's swimming he's, he's yeah, basically it's just his head just and the, shoulders in the, in the sea yeah in the sea and yeah. um, I must say that is a very powerful expression in it, it is yeah, yeah it's it's probably the best pair of eyes I've painted. Um, I mean, part of it is to do with the fact that it's, it's, it brings this, the ocean into them as well. Mm. That's part of the power of those eyes and the fact that, that um, you know, the, the sea's there just below his chin and it's sort of, it's, and, and that's part of the thing I wanted to bring into it because he writes about the sea so well. Mm. Uh, and do you think, do you think, um, do you think that the, the eyes are probably the most expressive part of the face? Do you? in that respect, I mean, um, to convey emotion? The gaze is very important, yeah. Um, I, th I think one of the, the paramount things in painting a portrait and making it successful is giving the visage of the person, the representation of the person, um, a sense of, of consciousness. So being aware when you look at the portrait that there's, there's a mind at work. Mm. And... And Some, that could be almost anything about it. Well, you that don't know. Could, yeah. you have, you have, we have no idea what each other's thinking. No idea. No. You know, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a, you know we, we 
pretend and romanticise about wind, eyes of the windows of the soul and what of that, but you can't see. No, you can't see anything, no. You know, and, well, and, and as Giacometti said, he said someone asked him, you know, if he was trying to do that, paint what's on the interior, and his response, well, no, there's there's just too much information on the outside to try and get right to bother with <laughs> what's right. going on the inside. But the thing about that, that the thing that that comment gives away is that body language and the way a face can read can give you some internal information give you a sense not always but sometimes yeah sometimes well, we, we make that something. up too it's it's again it's a subjective thing as all reading of art is but it's it's uh, it's going to be subjective in terms of how someone views a portrait mm. or a painting well it can be i i think also with a portrait is it can be the tiniest part of it that brings it to life like it can be mm. a highlight mm. or a mm. you know the, the most minuscule sort of line yeah, yeah, that is going to do yeah, that. Yeah, but it's yeah. identifying what that is. That yes. <laughs> we're trying to figure out and, where And is being it. able to place it correctly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, actually, with your style of work, which, I mean, I haven't even, we haven't even mentioned this yet, that you use a very, you know, impasto style mm. usually. Um, I would suspect that there'd be a lot of challenges with that with a portrait because mm, right, yeah. isn't there, I mean, I would have thought you've got problems with shadows of the actual paint as well that yep. might interfere yep. with the actual, you Reading know. of the image. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Do you sometimes have to adjust that for that reason? Um, I guess I do it intuitively now. I mean, I became aware of it on a number of instances because often something looks right in the studio and it goes out into the world and it's happened a few times in the Archibald and then it's hung in a different light yeah. and it's kind of that's not how it looks in the studio <laughs> and uh and you suddenly realize oh there's different things at play here in terms of what you're talking about the, the shadowing and the reading maybe a shadow that was in the studio isn't there anymore so it's flat or it goes the other way and it's it's um, harrowed or um, mm. becomes an irksome thing. So that is a that is a technical problem that, that definitely I'm aware of and, and is so you built into the way I, yeah. I guess I put it together now. And a lot of it's also helped by the fact that um, since 2013, I've been painting uh, portraits from life in gouache and watercolour. And that's using a brush and a flat medium. Mm. And so that's helped me to, to read the form in that way where I don't require, you know, the, the massive amounts of paint. It's become more about the drawing. Yes. Um, well, I would have thought gouache would be very hard to do portraits in because uh, it dries so fast. It does, but it just, it's just another discipline in the sense that you... you um, I mean, the sessions are between two and three hours, so I don't have long, and they're life size pretty much. They're mm. on three sheets of paper, full oh, figure. Yeah, I saw one of Anna Volska actually that was yeah. really great, yeah. of John Bell's wife. Yeah, yeah. So, with her dog. Yeah, with her dog. And um, beautiful. I've got those boxes over there are full. I mean, the tall one is four sheets. Ah. So, the study I did of John Olson for the portrait, that's a four sheeter. So, the one of John Olson, so you did a gouache work yep. of John Olson before you did the Archibald entry that yeah, you and that, and that, last year. And um, I didn't get as long as I thought because we were up drinking rosé after an hour and a half <laughs> and I thought I was going to get three hours. So what I got in an hour and a half was the information I worked with. I didn't take any oh. photographs of, of any use. And really? So you did that all from life? And so I projected the, I projected the it's all in the, um, 
that um, uh, Archibald documentary. So ah, in okay, here, yeah. I, I as I was saying, I, I didn't get to see that because I'm yeah, not Yeah, so I, pro- I projected the the image of the gouache. Yeah, and and then I had the gouache actually sitting pinned up on a large canvas to the side over here. But then I was working to a projection, and a projection only works to a certain degree, certainly in terms of transposing proportionally. Mm. But then you get too much information in terms of what's projected and what you put on. You have to turn the projector off. Yes. And then yes. it becomes about working from the gouache, or in some cases, the drawing. So the gouache was your main yeah, sort of that was uh, my source. source. Yeah. But the thing that that brings into play as well is memory. Mm. So when I look at the gouache and I'm trying to read a particular form in the face that's taking me back to the moment that I was looking at the face. Mm. And then, there's, then that brings back a little bit more information than's in the gouache. But then there was still information, there were holes in my memory and there were holes in the gouache in the mm. sense of what information I required. So we went to an opening of John's show at, at Tim's gallery and I just spent the whole night just looking at John. <laughs> I mean, he must have... You know, I didn't comment on it, but I, I must look like some kind of stalker. Yeah, right. And I knew the problems I had to solve, so I was looking yeah. at those zones, and I went back the next day, and I just put them in. Oh, from memory from of memory. that night. Yeah. So That's, you didn't draw anything no, when you were watching no, oh, it? I, I sort of drew from memory, but they didn't work as drawings, but they might have helped me bring something back. But yeah, yeah. But it was... It, it was um, That's amazing. I always find it amazing that people can work from memory because I, I don't know, I just can't sort of... There's always stuff missing, but then sometimes that's not important. Sometimes it is, and you have to return to whatever it is. And um, what did he think of that painting? Um, Did he tell you? No, he didn't tell me. Did Uh, you ask him? No, I didn't ask him. (laughs) Well, this leads me on to the question. Tim loved it. Did he? Tim loved it. I loved it. I think it's great. And Tim told me that John loved it, and, um, and I know I've had my portrait painted, and it's yeah. an awkward moment, very awkward. But it's, he's one of the best subjects I've ever had. And in not what just, way? In what well, way? many ways. First of all, who he is, and he's yeah. a painter. Yeah. So I should just say for overseas listeners who probably know of John Olson anyway, but <clears throat> he is one of our most important artists in Australia. He is indeed, yeah. and um, and a poet as well, and and, and uh, bon vivant. Hmm. So in many ways, that's that ebullience is a great subject. Um, yeah. But he's a painter, so immediately there's empathy in the room when you sit with someone who's a painter. Definitely. There's immediate empathy. Didn't he say something like, be brutal? That's what I was leading to. <laughs> so he said, after we said, be brutal. And, um, <laughs> and that frees you. A painter would say that. And that frees you. Yeah, definitely. You know, because I've, I've had a fairly recent portrait experience where, where you know, it, 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 it didn't go well in terms of the response from the, um, the sitter. It was one of my best portraits. But it, but it. Um, that must be disappointing. Or well, do you yeah, in really? a way, it's it's disappointing because, um, yeah, because you think you've done the person justice. You know, they're they're at a particular time of life, so you know they're they're not as as young and and um, and glorious as they might have once been. But it certainly remains in their visage. Um, but we all get old and, and mm. we all um, aren't what we used to be. We're all a little bit diminished. But the, the painting certainly didn't, didn't um, it's still a very commanding presence. 
so it's it's disappointing in one sense, but I'm still incredibly proud of the painting and very happy I painted mm. it. Mm. Um, but it's a little bit disappointing because it doesn't doesn't get as much light of day as it as it as it deserves. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? How other people react to your work and yeah. how you feel about it. And, and it's, it's, it's 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 nothing new. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's it goes way back. You yeah. know, I mean, the Pope, number of popes who weren't happy with whatever their um, masters mm. of the day did with them, and um, you know, it's not a not a new thing. Mm. And and so John's comment, you know, there was nothing vain or he was just interested in, in facilitating and servicing a, a fellow painter which was a remarkable mm. gift to receive and um, oh definitely and also and I, and I feel I've done him justice yeah yeah so, you have definitely it's yeah. a great painting yeah. wonderful painting do you talking about um well just sort of capturing well youth in a way that's what I'm getting at mm. I remember I think it was singer sergeant Oh, oh, glorious um, painter. Yeah. What a portrait I, painter he is. Oh, yeah, yeah amazing. Yeah. But I've t- I think he's got a great gift for painting young women. He does. And I've said to people, it's almost impossible. I've said to other artists, I think on this podcast, mm. it's one of the hardest things is to paint young women. Yes. Um, I've done portrait of young women from life, and that was okay. It's just a, an, an oil painting on paper, but um, that worked out reasonably well. Mm. Uh, mm. But most of them, the ones I have done, uh, have been on on paper. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't with it? With gouache. Yeah, with gouache. Yeah, yeah a, a sort of more of a. It's it's. What's well, more liquid is more gen- gentle or something. Gentle or more um, more of a contiguous surface. It's not as the surface isn't interrupted by mark, um, disrupted disrupted mark as much. Mm. Um, it's, 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 it's an interesting conundrum. Mm. Do you feel there's more pressure to, to flatter a woman if you're doing it for a woman? There's definitely that, that sense of, um, of that coming into it. Yes, definitely. And I don't, I don't know why that is. Maybe that's a, a male gaze hang-up. I don't know. <laughs> it certainly didn't, didn't bother people like Picasso. Or, <laughs> you know, uh, well, I suppose you also want to please the person in a way. Sometimes, yep, yep. Sometimes you do. Yes, you do, certainly. There is that, yeah. which, is a, which is a reverse vanity. You know, it's the <laughs> yeah, word vanity working back the other way. So that's, that's a bit of a tell. Yeah, it's so difficult. I think portraiture is sort of fraught oh, with it's all a mind film. It's a, it's a, it's a fraught minefield. Especially and when they end up in the Archibald. I mean, you've had so many in the Archibald yeah. and they're so public. Yes. You know, you know that everyone's going to see them. And I look back at some of them and I've destroyed a few. And, and, really? And um, some of them, others I've looked back and gone, oh, that's a... Not many, but there are some. It's just, oh, quel horreur. It's just... Really? You feel like that oh, about just, some of your past work? Yeah. I mean, you grow yeah. up, basically, well, I was using the Archibald to grow up in public um, because, <laughs> one, it gives you a great audience. You know, more people go to see that show than you'd get nothing close to that for a solo exhibition. Nothing close to no, it. No, that's right. And the other thing is you get you to see your work up um, as some kind of measurement against your peers... Mm. Um, which can be, which can work out well when, say, when you sort of win a, win a people's choice or, a, or a, the big one, and on other occasions as well. But it's often the failures that, that teach you more in the sense that when you've done a real, well, that not as good as I thought it was when it was back in the studio, and you measure it against a really good one by, you know, a mate of yours or something, mm. and you go, wow, okay, so what's going on here? So that, that's a dialogue between 
two painters going on there and you can learn from that. Yeah. You know? And uh, I mean, I've been blessed in one sense because when you start out, you never expect to be of any influence. And, and, and I've seen my influence at work in quite a number of occasions. Mm. And, and in some occasions, they've, they've taken off in different, you know, new directions, which were very mm. exciting. And that's, that's a wonderful thing to, um, to behold. Some but, people don't like it, though. Some people don't like it when they see other people taking it. Well, sometimes it's too copied, mm. um, but I've copied people. Mm. And initially you're a bit sort of, oh, well, you know, it's, when, when you're in a whole exhibition of pretty much copies of, of um, a Rivers figure series of mine, and it was kind of like, oh, that's a bit, mm. that's not quite right. But then you realise it it's really quite, quite flattering in yeah. another sense. Yeah, and as long as they don't do it better than you. <laughs> well, exactly right. I was about to say mine were much better. So it was okay. They hadn't really got a handle on it. You know, they, they were, yeah. weren't quite hitting the mark. And uh, which <laughs> those, is good. By the way, talking about that river series, oh my god, I love those. Oh, thank you. I remember yeah. when well, there was at the, that great um, survey of your work at SH Urban yes. Gallery, Drawn to Paint, yes. in 2010. Yeah. And I went to that, and I just oh. That was the oh. most recent work in that show. So that was. Was it? Yeah. yeah. Only about a year old or something. It so. must have been still drying. Pretty much. <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I think with those, with some of those, when you had those huge, actually, we should talk about your landscapes. We should move on to your yeah. landscapes because yeah, I probably should just finish that oh, yes. thought yeah. about um, influence and what I was saying, learning from your peers. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing you can take from that is you can take back. So they take from you, but yeah. what's stopping you from taking what they've learned yeah. and bringing it into your work? Exactly. So it's it's um, it's a conversation that goes. You know, you want to remain yourself, but you, you know, we're, there's a great. Um, Bono line in The Fly, you know, that song off Actung Baby, and it's um, every artist, what is it, every, every artist is a criminal, every poet is a thief, we kill the things we love and we sing about the grief. So an artist just goes out there and as Picasso famously said, you just steal what you want. Yeah. And um, you don't borrow it, you don't want to give it back, <laughs> so you go out and take it. And yeah, uh, and yeah. if you're if you're a good enough artist, it'll just fold back into your work, and become yours anyway. Yeah, let's talk about your landscape work because um, you know I've, as we just talked about your your show at SH Irvine Gallery was just amazing, uh, and um, that you've painted you know rivers, uh, cliffs, beaches countryside and huge often a lot of vegetation in those those mm. paintings and particularly those palm-like pandanus plants mm. which have been popping up for a long time yeah. um i just wanted to talk about in particular uh, uh you know the works you've been doing from uh the flinders ranges yeah. in the last few years because yeah. they're just incredible yes. is it is the place called wilpina 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 yeah wilpina pound so okay. it's um it's a uh, you know, long extinct volcano that's a it's a round uh, containment in the, within the landscape. Oh, I see. And so it's it's dense. So we're talking about an area that's dense eucalypts, mm. wattles, yeah, um, gums. And you can walk. There's a major walk. You can major walks you can do around it. So oh, you get, okay. You get quite immersed in 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 the whole the whole landscape. Well. When I got, well, I think it was in 2016, the 2016 um, entry into the Win Prize, which you were highly commended for. Mm. It's called, 
Wilpina Wattle. And I remember walking into the Art Gallery of New South Wales and seeing that and just being totally bowled over by it because it, it just envelops you and it's basically looking straight into dense mm. scrub. Mm. So, well, Impenetrable. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about how you go about those sort of paintings? Well, the, these paintings I've been using um, photographic reference and certainly with the ones like the one behind me here where the scale has, has gone up, I've started working re- reworking with the uh, grid, which I did way back, even before I was exhibiting. Right. And so this one so we're looking at is probably like two, is it two, over two Two and, and a half right. by about just under two. Yep. Um, and basically I just work on one particular area at a time and I treat it as an abstract piece so that the photographs aren't always directly what's been transposed from the, the environment. Sometimes it's, um, I've started using a bit of Photoshop. Yeah, right. So I've always been a big fan of Hockney and the way he's brought different elements and different tools into his means of practice. Mm. I've done the on-plane-air thing and I've you know done successful work on-plane-air, but I find on-plane-air too limiting. In what way? Uh, well, you're, you've got to get a work finished pretty much within a certain time frame because I work with oils, so it limits in terms of scale. Yeah. The, 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 the nature of the ambition of the work is different. The thing I liked about, about it, it's a very robust way of, of, of um, working and it's a great way, a bit like life drawing, of bringing uh, a descriptive brevity to the work and an economy. But the work isn't as contemplative as, as I like it to be. Mm. I want to slow the process of making the work down. Mm. I want it to, to be more absorbing. It's probably best to go back to the, the inks on paper. So the inks on paper, which I've been doing for, for decades now, they've always been from, from photographs. And the, the thing I liked about that was the resistance in the paper and then involving the paper in the, in the drawing process. Well, you more, you scratched into that, paper, yeah, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, and that was just a matter of correction and 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 putting the image together by mm. taking it back to the paper again to make a fresh mark. But the thing that I enjoy about that process is it slowed me down, and so the the I'm trying to find the right word to describe the drawing within it. It's more concise it's more it's yeah. more considered and the mark making becomes abstracted if you go in and look at the surface the, the mark making and the inks on paper are very abstracted mm. so we're but talking about a, like eddie avenue yeah for eddie example. avenue yeah. and the pandanus which you won the Dabell prize yeah. for and, and the and the pandanus um ah, and, that, and that's very much what's led me to somewhere like walpina um walpina i responded to because of the nature of the the the, the, the light and the nature of the 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 colour of the palette that was that was offered, but the light's the paramount thing. So I was looking for a way of bringing that practice of how I worked with the inks on paper into the landscape. So with the benefit of having been out doing it on plain air for for, for some time, um, and I was producing finished works that were going to exhibition um, that way, uh, but I wanted to take it somewhere else mm. and and so by using a similar way of working with oil on the canvas as I was with the um, the inks on paper I've been able to bring that more considered 
nature into it. And I've always been interested in fracturing the surface. So it's, an, it's recognizing its artificial nature and its, its, um, its fragmented, abstracted mark making. But then when you pull back, it becomes a naturalistic image. Mm. But I like that, that, um, that kind of robust uh, is it dichotomy, you know, where you've got two mm. things at work mm. um, in the one thing. And I was very um, inspired by that MCA show of Chuck Close and how he turned each individual part of the grid of the, the face into its own little delightful abstract yeah. and playful it was playful and and um, mm. and exciting well even just looking behind you now I'm looking at the painting you're working on mm. and I can see that each of those parts of the whole have got something beautiful in them mm. themselves mm. because the, the color will be you know mm. well also what it does is is it, Often when you're on plein air, you focus on particular elements to tie your composition together. And often there's a, there's a hierarchy of structure, if you like. Whereas this, this more considered contemplative approach, I find you get more of a, a, an over, um, sort of a democratic kind of treatment of the surface. So no particular element's any more important than the other. Mm. So it's almost... Um, flattening it in that sense and and the leaves aren't leaves and the bark's not bark and mm. the tree's not a tree they're all paint mm. and they're all mark making which is an abstract thing yes and I, as i said i do i do love abstract work but but i need to be tethered to something it can't be arbitrary in the nature of an abstract mm. work um, but there, i presume though even though when we zero in and that, that abstraction is happening, you have to pull back and then make sure it works as a whole. Yeah, I don't stand back that often. Don't um, you? No. Oh, that's um, interesting. It's um, maybe, I don't know, it's hard to, you can't really measure these things in, in, in a very defined way. It's, it's uh, once again, it's a very intuitive, organic mm. thing. It's just um, what you do during the day. But I guess I lean back maybe a meter or so but um i rarely step back a long way and until a few hours have passed so you're, you're pretty confident that the composition is going to work yeah i trust you know, my process yeah you know yeah. i've got my information and the information deteriorates because it gets covered in paint <laughs> so often something I'm, I'm i'm transposing wasn't actually in the original photograph it's it's a mark of paint but it's like oh that that's actually quite effective and so it becomes part of the landscape um, and that's nothing new because that yeah. Francis Bacon used to do that all the time you see the floor of his studio and, and the photos that he was working with and, and, the, acts, and the wipes of paint that have turned into some kind of um, spark for things he's put into his paintings yeah, so it's right. just this um, so all that, that tying you know I, 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 I see you know a lot of people sort of think you know you, you can't paint from photographs because it's it's not right but i think if you recognize its strengths but also recognize its weaknesses its weaknesses it's it's a monocular nature mm. so you've always got to be mindful of it's looking down a tunnel um which is that thing that you know that that moment of disappointment coming back from a holiday and you used to get your holiday snaps back when the the days when you used to get picked up from the chemist yeah. and you remember this great day and you took this great picture of this great piece of scenery 
And you look at it, it looks oh so flat and far away. Yeah, that's right. And it's because that's what a photograph does. It pushes things away. It doesn't yeah. bring it in. It has no intimacy. Yeah. And that's because it doesn't have stereoscopic vision. So we're, we're blessed with this continual vision mix of, of left and right. And mm. it gives you all these pushes and pulls, sideways, um, forward, back, that, you know, every time you move your head, everything, all the relationships shift a little bit. Mm. And so you get all that when you do things from life and on plain air. Um, but when you're working back in the studio and you've, you've got your, your, you've got your, your um, fundamental photographic reference, but you've also got the concept you originally had and you've got all the impulses you had Mm. from that original moment in the landscape Mm. so you've got the sounds you've got the smells you've got the the weather you've got the breeze or not and your sense of placement in it and all these things are feeding in into this this new thing you're making back in the studio so i think it's i think it's a very i think it's valuable to have all those those avenues of experience Mm. Um, but, but the once other it thing comes back to the studio, it's an, it's as I say, as I keep saying, it's an artificial thing. So it's got to, you've got to make up your own rules. Of course, and yeah. I think, well, that's right. And you've you, and you make up your own rules in relation to your work using mm. the photographic reference because, obviously, the paint you are putting on is not as it appears in the photograph. You know. No, I mean? no, no. I'm not I even. Mean, I'm not even painting the photograph as such. No. It's, um, it's, 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 I presume it's like a structural guide. In it's a definitely way. A, yes. It's a, it's, a, it's a. I guess that's a, it's a skeletal, um, a skeletal form. But mm. um, there are so many more things. Otherwise, I just go and print a photograph. Yeah, a exactly. Photograph doesn't give me anything. And the other, yeah. the very important thing about a painting is it's full of time. A photograph is one two hundred fiftieth of a second or whatever. Mm. Whereas a painting, it's not just the time it takes to make the thing it's the time during its its initial genesis and conception before it even gets to this point of being something in the studio um, in process it's it's all the other things that have gone before you in in the sense of you know your past the things you've paid attention to all the all the painters that you've looked at and and taken things from the ones you're still looking at and taking things from. Mm. So it's just this, just this many-headed um, beast of, um, of possibility. Yeah. You know, and you get it into this crucible of the studio and you kind of wrest some kind of material thing from it. Also another very interesting aspect of your work is these drawings that you have been, or oh, and and paintings that you have been um, doing in relation to uh, theatre work? Yeah. And because a very close friend of yours is Hugo Weaving, the actor, who has invited you to the Sydney Theatre Company to, so you you are actually witnessing their rehearsals as well as their performances and drawing while they're yeah. doing that. Yes, how's that been? How what's sort oh, of so it's so. Um such a wonderful experience and such a marvellous opportunity and um, it's sort of opening things up in in different ways and it's also a natural following on from things that have gone previously. So that must have been like life drawing on steroids because they would have been moving around. Yeah, they're they're always moving so it's not 
like life drawing in the sense that someone sits still for even a minute. Um, they're always on the go. But the thing is, they're always repeating things as well because uh-huh. they're working over business. They're taking the script and the play apart um, and then putting it back together, both both lingually and um, and as a kinetic matter of performance on, on stage. Mm. So there's this... this um, I guess a, a parallel universes of me drawing and, and them rehearsing, uh, working in tandem in one sense because we're both finding our own rhythms in, mm. in how to do what we are there to do. And the thing that sort of works for me over time from because rehearsals go for about six weeks, including tech week in, in the theatre. Mm. And... I'm becoming acquainted with the work as as they construct it and create it. Yeah. And and so that that kind of reveals itself in the line. So as they start off a little awkwardly working things out, so my drawings start off a little awkwardly trying to work things out. Mm. Uh, and then the line also becomes informed not by just becoming more fluent in my transposition of what's happening in front of me. Um, and my observation of, of what they they are performing, it's it's also getting a sense of of, of what's in the text and the subtext. There's 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 some of that sort of bleeding into the into the shapes and the, and the forms that I'm, that I'm finding, mm. and well, yeah, and, 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 and they're revealing to me because they're finding shapes. You know, they're shapeshifters and they're in the liminal world of, of um, neither themselves nor the characters they're becoming. So they're, they're shaping these, melding all these elements together in, in performance. Yeah. Well, I mean, and there are amazing plays that you've been drawing. I mean, for example, plays. Waiting for Godot, talking yeah. about text and subtext. I yeah, mean. <laughs> yes, Endgame, another Beckett that I've drawn. And then you have Macbeth, you know, the Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, and then there's, there's Chekhov with um, the present um, and, and also, and you've been have you been drawing like some of the our most talented Australian actors? You yeah, know, that's Hugo a, that's Weaving, an honor. Richard yeah. Roxburgh, Kate Blanchett, yep. Yep. and um, you know they're they're uh, that must be pretty thrilling as well to see it's, that sort of quality of actor doing their thing. Yes, yeah, and and it's also encouraging in another way because as an artist, you know, there's many failures that go into the making of our work, um, and we fail alone. Um, the mm. actors they they um, they fail together to find their successes because mm. to succeed and to find to experiment, obviously there's going to be failure uh, along the way. Mm. Um, so it's very revealing to watch that occur and then to see how they solve those problems. So those initial vulnerable grapplings with text and concepts within the. The, the, the play become sort of consummate achievements. To witness that is is a very first a very privileged thing to, to, to be able to do. Mm. But it's also revealing in the sense that, that is just part of the creative process. Yeah. And when I when I say sort of watch them fail to succeed, um, you know, people often think of failure as a bad thing or as a, as a, as a, you know, as a negative thing. 
but really it's often by trying things that don't work that you find the thing that does work. Yeah. You know, and if you just do the same thing all the time because that worked last time, it doesn't mean it's going to work next time. Mm. So you, you've got to sort of always remain open to the possibility of throwing something into the mix you haven't tried before yeah. and and um, seeing where it goes. Exactly. And it's great to hear that that's, uh, those works are ultimately going to make their way into a book, which hopefully will be coming out. Yes, yes, we've year. made a selection of, because there's thousands of drawings from dozens of books, so we've yeah. made a, 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 um, a selection of, of some of the, the, the more successful ones. And uh, hopefully, yeah, that, that's in... Uh, mid-range production at the moment so mm. it's still got a way to go but yeah. it's getting look, looking good we're talking about drawing some drawings of yours that I really enjoyed were ones that were on Instagram and they were drawings that you actually drew when you were going through cancer treatment which mm. you were diagnosed with at the end of 2017 and happily you're now cancer free mm. um, can you tell me a bit about that period, like the, the, those drawings and, and... Sure, yeah. Um, well, I couldn't get into the studio for about five months. Um, I was just too tired and I was on opioids and, and it was just too... Um, I wanted in here every now and then to look at the work. I had a work on the go, a big work, this kind of scale. And I just came in to sit in front of it and think about what I was going to do with it next when I came back to it. Mm. And so I... But usually I was at home and um, sleeping, um, going to treatment, watching television, trying to read. That didn't really happen either. Couldn't really concentrate. Mm. But I had to do something, so I kept a visual journal and sometimes a week would go by where I hadn't drawn anything, but then I'd pick up the pen and draw something. And the things I was drawing, I was drawing people in the waiting rooms. I was drawing my arm with the cannula in it while I was having chemo. did you have to feel sufficiently well to be able to do that? I mean, well, was, I wasn't, did it help uh, you? Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, the opioids work, so you don't you don't feel a lot in the sense that I wasn't in great pain. Mm. Um, I was definitely uncomfortable, but um, I was getting off fairly lightly in terms of, of you know, what can happen. So that was a plus. Mm. And I was in good hands both at the hospital and, and at home and with friends. Mm. And so the drawings actually became, uh, I was often drawing, apart from those things I've just mentioned, I was drawing things that people were giving me. The, initially they were giving me food. Yeah. Um, well, and then I couldn't eat, so they weren't giving me food. Or if they did, Lynn would eat it, which was good because she was a carer. She needed taken care of as well. Yeah. And um, people sent me lots of flowers. Um, and yeah, occasional cool. gifts, books, yeah. candles, um, things of that nature. And so I drew these things um, and the fruit and, the, and whatever. Mm. And as well as the, the, the hospital mm. things as well. And so it, was, it became very much a celebration of, because of, um, that's what my work is. It celebrates the fact that, you know, we're here at all kind of thing and, and, how, and how wonderful it can be. I mean, we've got to recognise that it's not wonderful for everybody, but I'm a lucky person, and many of us are, and I want to celebrate that that nature of of of, of life. And so this this was like a celebration of care and friendship and love and and good medicine as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are a couple of pages that that um, refer to ugly moments that were terrible, uh, mm-hmm. and 
and I kept them reasonably cryptic. So the darker times. Yeah, the darker times, but they're there, and mm. Um, mm. Uh, I wasn't interested in illustrating my pain, necessary my pain or any kind of suffering that mm. doesn't appeal to me. Mm. Um, and and I, I don't I don't I didn't count it high on a scale of pain and suffering. I I saw at the hospital people going through far worse. I know people who've gone through far worse, and mm. uh, not necessarily who've survived. And and so I think to you know I, I don't believe in that ego side of, of um, expression. I, I try to avoid that. Mm. I think that's why I was alluding to um, the consideration and contemplation that I'm trying to bring into into the landscape. It's a more of a meditative contemplation of life, um, exciting, but a but a but a quite a vibration, a really sort of um, enduring resonance. So these, well, the, we're talking about the, you know, you're mentioning the landscape. So these, so you've got a show coming up at Philip Bacon Gallery yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in a few months, yeah. in August. Yeah. Um, are these, busy. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is it going to be sort of focusing on that Will Penis sort of? Um, I think so, yeah. I yeah. think so. I've really found a, I, it's, the, the thing that attracted me was the light and, and my subject pretty much is largely light. Well, Nicholas, thank you so much for having me in your studio. Pleasure. I just, it's been a great conversation and good mm. luck with your show. Thanks very much, Maria. Thank you. <laughs>